There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi everyone, Andy here. Just before we get to the interview this week, which I really did enjoy with Andrew Gallimore and Dan joining me for the interview as well, I just want to give people a very quick heads up. Feel free to skip 30 seconds to a minute if you don't want to hear about supporting the podcast on Apple or Patreon. But very quickly, for those of you who who do support the podcast, thank you very much. Patreon, since the start, has always been the kind of only option. Um, But Apple Podcasts have just launched their new subscription service. So you can head over, if you're on Apple, to Apple uh, iTunes, I believe, or Apple Podcasts, and you can listen to the podcast ad-free, early access, and get some bonus content there as well. I've always said the the podcast is free and will be free. It does go onto the free feeds normally after a couple of days. There's a little bit of bonus content goes out as well, which is exclusive to those who are supporting the show via Patreon or Apple. Um, and sometimes I try and get the shows up three, four, maybe five days early too. So if you can support the podcast, please head on, on over to patreon.com where we've got a really good community of listeners who chat away on the various message boards and there's some new merchandise and tiers being refreshed at the end of the month. Or if you're on Apple and just want to support the show you can get a two-week free trial so you might as well try it if you want head on over and you'll get early access and ad free listening to the podcast as well on top of that it's just a click of the button like you know on apple things are kept pretty simple as well if you don't want to and you've listened to me for the last minute and a half thank you very much for listening anyway the main thing is that you listen to the show you like retweet share subscribe follow keep in touch all that is the main thing but like i say if you want to support then you've got some options to do that folks without me going on too much more let's get on with the interview hi everyone and welcome back to that ufo podcast my name is andy and joining me for this interview in a rare treat i've got my regular co-host dan dan how are we doing today Uh, i'm great thank you i'm very excited to uh to be here today I know you are. And before I even uh, had arranged this, I did say to you when I was going to get in touch with the guest we've got on that uh, this would be one you'd be very much interested in. And I feel your your level of expertise is required on this one too. So as excited as I am, I am a novice when it comes to this kind of subject. So uh, joining us, uh, the guest is Dr. Andrew Gallimore. He is a computational neurobiologist, pharmacologist and chemist. He is a writer who has been interested in the neural basis of psychedelic drug action for many years. I did not read that off the top of my head. That is something that's written down, obviously. He's also appearing at this year's Contact in the Desert, where I've been doing interviews for that as well. Uh, Dr. Gallimore, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very much looking forward to the conversation. Um, A lot of interest in this one, given... You just mentioned to me before we hit record, it's a UFO podcast and we, we talk about all the things that comes along with. But I like to go off the beaten track now and again. We've had a little bit of remote viewing and such in the past. And there's so many different things that come along with UAPs, the phenomenon, whatever you want to call it. 
and gateway drugs DMT comes up now and again in the conversations with various different guests. So it's good to finally have someone as an expert in that field to to have that part of the conversation and and probably tell us what I'm getting wrong. Um, so Andrew, I'd love to know what started your interest in psychedelics. Um, uh, goodness. So you've got to go back to my teenage years, I guess. Um, so I mean, as all teenagers do, I I, I, I well, not all teenagers, that's a bit of a stretch, but many teenagers are kind of become interested in um, broadly altered states of consciousness uh, or, you know, drugs, basically. Uh, but I was, I was, I've been interested in kind of the, un, the more unusual side of life, so to speak. Um, strange, since I was a little kid, I was interested in ghosts and vampires and you know, the occult and much to the concern of my parents and my, my teachers, you know, a little eight-year-old interested in Ouija boards and things. Um, and so, so it's clear that I was kind of, I kind of liked the stranger side of, of life and, and psychedelics is, is kind of one approach. It's one way of, uh, it's one route, if you like, if you're interested in, in, in the weirder things in life. And um, so when I was a teenager, I became interested a little bit in psychedelics and their potential. And then um, as I kind of moved through academic life and went to university, uh, I, I started taking it more seriously and started studying chemistry, pharmacology, and then neuroscience. So I've had this, it's kind of run as a thread, if you like, through my, um, through my, my academic and my personal life for sort of 20 25 years, I guess now, um, thinking about psychedelics and trying to work out, trying to understand what they are and what what they mean and uh, kind of what, what, what we can learn about ourselves and about the structure of our reality by, um, by using these kind of remarkable molecular technologies that are found scattered throughout the natural world. So, yeah, still on that road. Awesome. Uh, now, DMT is an area of expertise of yours, and there's various different psychedelics, LSD, mushrooms, and I've got various questions from, mm. from people on these, but as you've said, DMT is your kind of area of focus. My only real knowledge of DMT, and if this is correct, I, I hope so. If not, you can tell me I'm wrong, but is that when you die, your, your brain releases a small amount of DMT. Is that correct? Um, who knows? Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, okay. it's it's it's, a, it's purely speculation. So, so this this idea goes back to Rick Strassman. I mean, um, I mean, Rick's a, a legend within the kind of DMT community. He did the largest study of uh, the effects of DMT in human volunteers back in the early nineties, and he proposed uh, this is. I mean, his book's called The Spirit Molecule. He suggested that perhaps. Because partly because of some of the similarities with the, the near death experience and the DMT state, uh, that perhaps DMT might somehow uh, provide some kind of means of exit of the soul from the body at death. But I mean, this is purely within the realms of speculation. Um, uh, it's become something of um, it's kind of taken on a bit of a life of its own. This idea and it's it's stated. As fact, there's kind of two weird little um, non-facts that are stated as fact. One is that DMT is released when you're dreaming, and that it causes dreams, and that goes back to uh, 
again speculation in from the from the 1980s. Um, the paper was published suggesting that maybe DMT production during REM sleep was responsible for dreaming. And then this was Rick Strassman idea that maybe it was released at death. And so that's, that's kind of these two things. I hear them all the time um, on Facebook, Facebook groups. And I have to, I can't help myself but to correct people and say, no, there's no, there's no evidence that DMT is released during, during dreaming. And in fact, the DMT state is nothing like the dream state. So it, it doesn't even make any sense. I'll let Dan come in on that one, but I'm glad you've corrected me because you know what? That was my one little nugget I thought. At least that I've heard that, but it's one of those things. I read it online, didn't yeah, fact yeah, check yeah, it, yeah. so I just went, yeah, that, that must be right. That sounds right. So, Dan? Oh, just while we were on the subject of kind of uh, misnomers, I guess, um, I wanted to ask about what the, the third thing I kind of heard was that the pineal gland in our in our brains was very much the seat of consciousness and where this dmc came from is that for you in the same kind of category as unconfirmed kind of stuff yeah i mean the, the, the thing is that the pineal gland has this kind of esoteric history it's it, it's kind of deeply rooted in mysticism this idea that, that the pineal gland is the, is the seat of consciousness the third eye um this this you can trace this back to to, to kind of more mystical and esoteric writings and, and traditions uh, but they're not really based on modern neuroscience and there's i mean the pineal gland is it's right in the center of the brain and it releases melatonin which is its, its primary purpose is to produce quite small amounts of melatonin it's only a small it's about the size of the end of the, your little finger the, the pineal gland it's not big uh, it's certainly not pumping out DMT in large quantities. You know, it produces m micrograms of of melatonin at night. So it, it's a small organ uh, in, the, in the brain, and it's a small gland in the brain that's designed to produce very small amounts of melatonin. It's not it's it's not suited. It's not uh, at all physiologically to producing large amounts of, of DMT. So unfortunately, it would be nice if we could point to the pineal gland as this kind of as being the seat of consciousness. But, I mean, people have that pineal gland removed. I mean, pineal cancer is, is, is relatively rare, but you can have your pineal gland removed and you don't, your consciousness doesn't evaporate. You, you, you're basically the same. The only difference is that you, you might struggle with your sleep-wake cycle a little bit. Um, but, you know, uh, apart from that, you're, you're in good shape. So, so, so I think the pineal has been elevated to a status which it really doesn't deserve, I'm afraid. <laughs> so with DMT, where is it found? And it's a natural substance. Where, where would you, where would one find it in the world? Well, I mean, you would find it in the human body, but in very small amounts. I mean, that's the thing here. So, I mean, you would even find it in the pineal gland. I mean, DMT is a very simple molecule, dimethyltryptamine. Um, so, so the tryptamines are derived from the amino acid tryptophan. And tryptophan is a common amino acid. It's uh, it's found in all proteins. Pretty much, um, and as such, uh, the, the body uses tryptophan to produce serotonin, for example, um, uh, and to produce, to produce melatonin. So, and tri uh, DMT is kind of it's very very closely related to, to tryptophan. It's like there's two chemical steps from tryptophan to DMT. Um, so it's not surprising, in my opinion, um, that you would find very small amounts of DMT. You find lots of kind of metabolic products in the body. Not all of them have a, an important function. DMT might, under certain circumstances, 
have an important function. There is speculation about that. Um, but uh, I'm not convinced that, that it's ever released at what you would call psychedelic concentrations. So if you want to have a DMT trip, uh, you need to go outside the human body. You need to find it in nature. And fortunately, it's extremely common uh, in the natural world, particularly in, in, in the plant kingdom. So um, there are a number of plants traditionally that have been used as sources of DMT. But DMT is kind of ubiquitous. It's this very curious phenomenon that this, the most potent and most, or most powerful and kind of profound reality switching molecule on the planet also happens to be the most common. It's the most common naturally occurring, the simplest of all the naturally occurring uh, psychedelic molecules. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it's everywhere, and yet it's it's um, it's also the most most kind of profound. So it's yeah. So if you want to get DMT, basically you need to find one of these these plants, um, or, or the root bark of certain trees, basically, and extract it. Hmm. What is the? Um, I'm sure I'm not the only person wondering this. <clears throat> DMT is abundant in nature and plants, hmm. and I kind of, I'm curious to know who first, you know, figured out how to get it out of those plants and use it in the um, way that it was used in kind of ritualistic settings. Is that something we've been able to figure out? Yes. I mean, it depends what you mean by knew how to get it out. I mean, the, I mean, the Amazonian tribes have been doing this for thousands of years. So ayahuasca, which is this ritual decoction, which contains two plants, one of which contains DMT, uh, traditionally uh, a plant called uh, Psychotria viridis. Uh, chakruna, uh, which contains a, a green it's a leaf, uh, contains DMT. And then you have another plant that contains something called a monamine oxidase inhibitor, which allows the DMT to be orally active. Normally, if you, if you swallow DMT, take it orally, it's broken down very, very quickly in, in the gastrointestinal system, the stomach and gut. So it's, it doesn't ever make it to your brain. Um, so you normally have to smoke it. Uh, but if you take it with this other plant, it stops it being broken down in your gut then you can, it makes it into the brain and can give you a, a, quite a long-lasting, several-hour uh, trip. So, 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 yeah, these tribes have been kind of getting it out of the plant using, you know, by boiling it up in water uh, for thousands of years. However, it's only recently that kind of we caught up. Um, we've actually been able to isolate and understand. I mean, they didn't know that it was DMT that they were. Uh, they didn't know it was DMT that they were. They were consuming. They were consuming what then was a, you know, a medicinal plant. But of course, in the in the twentieth century, uh, a Hungarian chemist called uh, Stephen Zara, who's still alive, I think he's like ninety eight now. Um, he he kind of discovered DMT, uh, which tells you if you discover a psychedelic drug, you live a long time. Albert Hoffman, I think he was one hundred and three or four when he died. Um, so Stephen Zara is already in his late nineties. So I think that's a discoverer, a naturally occurring, an important psychedelic, and you will live a long time. Um, yeah. So he he discovered um, he was interested in um, these kind of ritual snuff, so these ground up um, seeds from these plants, which which people would um, blow forcefully up the nostril, uh, and these contained a mixture of chemicals. Uh, but we weren't sure in the early part of the 20th century what they were. And Stephen Zara uh, had this hunch or this intuition that it was it was DMT. So he actually made some synthesized the DMT, 
um, and, and, and injected it on himself and kind of had the first DMT trip uh, in 1956, I believe. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that. Um, I, I think the typical trip for anyone is, you know, someone smoking weed or marijuana, whatever you want to call it in your part of the world. And you, you feel a bit happy, whatever may come along with that. But it's relatively low impact, if you want to call it. Yeah. I'm, you can probably tell I'm someone who has never really smoked marijuana or done psychedelics, so I might be using the wrong terminology. But hopefully other people listening who haven't are kind of along with me here. DMTs, no doubt, much more of a harder hitting impact and trip. Yeah. What is an experience with DMT like for someone who takes it? Well, uh, I mean, so so yeah. So the psychedelics they they vary in intensity. There are different. There's a large number of psychedelics, and they all have. They're unified in that they strain. They I always say that they're unified in that they they change. They alter the structure and dynamics of your experienced world, the structure of your reality. Um, but some of them do it in a quite subtle way. You know, alert, you take, you know, a couple of fresh psilocybe mushroom, magic mushrooms, you might have a quite enjoyable uh, experience. The colors might be brighter and the, the world might look a bit more dynamic and you, things might look more interesting. Um, what with DMTs is something quite different happens is that your, your, your entire reality, your entire... Uh, normal waking world is, is kind of is obliterated uh, in sort of 30 seconds. You're not, well, normally what would happen is you would, you would uh, inhale the drug or vaporize the drug in a small glass pipe, like a, like a, like a crack pipe, basically. Um, breathe into your lungs, one or two lungfuls, and then hold it in and close your eyes and, uh, and lie down. This is not a drug that's to be, it's not like a, a drug you would take at a party. It's, it's a drug you would take in a darkened room, normally on your own, maybe with one other person, lying down with your eyes closed. And, and then basically as soon as you've, within a few seconds of you inhaling it, um, you will start, you will basically find yourself being hurtled through this rapidly changing procession of complex visual imagery. Uh, and then if the, if the dosage is, is sufficient, you will kind of burst through some kind of veil uh, uh, and then you kind of tumble into this astonishingly strange, hyperdimensional, uh, bizarre, inordinately complex domain, uh, completely unlike anything that you would ever find in this universe, uh, and teeming often with extremely uh, intelligent and powerful beings and entities that um, you can interact with and communicate with. It's 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 a uh, an astonishing experience. It's, it's an experience that you can't comprehend or can't conceive of uh, before you've taken DMT. It's not, you know, we could talk about it until the, uh, the cows come home, I guess. Is that still a phrase? People still say oh, yeah, it's the, it's yes. <laughs> we can talk about it until the cows come home, but um, um, it, nothing will ever prepare you for the actual experience. Uh, it's, it's, it's unenglishable, Terence McKenna used to say. It cannot be rendered in language uh, or even in visual form, really. There are you know, there's some pretty good DMT artists these days who kind of do a fairly decent job at kind of with these kind of two-dimensional projections of the space. But, but ultimately, you're talking about a space that is impossible, in a sense. It's impossible for it to exist, and which is why it's so kind of shocking for most people. 
um, because they they are thrust into a, a a domain that has no relationship bears no relationship whatsoever to the normal waking world and is impossible. It's it's hyper dimensional. Okay? you see creatures with uh, that exist in uh, with nine or ten dimensional space. You see all sides of objects at once. The whole the whole uh, geometry and topology of the space is like nothing that you could ever imagine possibly existing. I mean, it's quite shocking the first time. Now, over the decades, consciousness has been something that's been talked about when it comes to, to UFOs, aliens, the phenomenon side of things. <clears throat> more and more the last few years, it's really grown into the conversation. And this is where I've, I've been really interested to have this chat with you. And you mentioned other universes. So what we're saying to people is that this isn't just something that your brain is making up. This is a real experience, as real as the experience we have in this body right now living. You're just having the experience somewhere else. Like your consciousness is having the experience somewhere else. Is that is that right in what I'm trying to say? Well, it's, it's a tricky one. It's a slippery one because uh, so, so the world you experience is always. So even now when you're having uh, the experience of the normal waking world, um, that that world that you're experiencing is is, is kind of a, it's a model of, of the environment that's being constructed by a brain. Um, so your brain builds a model of the environment and uses sensory information, kind of tests that model on a continuous basis against sensory information that's being received via the sensory apparatus, uh, the eyes, the ears, etc. Uh, but the world that you experience is always that model. Um, so. So when you enter the DMT space, what's happening is that your brain is constructing uh, a new model. Uh, it's constructing a model that bears no relationship to the normal waking world model. Um, and that's quite difficult to explain because your brain evolved. Uh, you know, we are a product of evolution. and Your brain evolved and developed to construct only one model. Uh, and that's the normal waking world model. That's the only model your brain should know how to build is the model of um the environment. So the question that's always kind of perplexed me, and I've always found rather confounding, is the idea that your brain can suddenly switch from constructing this model, which it has learned and evolved to construct, to constructing this entirely unrelated model with perfect crystalline uh, clarity. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a beautifully constructed, perfect world of impossible geometry and form. Um, and that's that's confounding. You know, why did the brain? How did the brain learn to do this? Uh, the only way it makes sense to me is if, um, in fact, the brain is interacting with some other space. The brain is receiving information from some other place that's modulating its new model in the same way that when you're in the normal waking state, your model, the brain's model, is being modulated by sensory information from this reality. Um, so that's the only way that I, I can reasonably explain it is if you are indeed um, DMT is somehow gating the flow of information from this other place. Um, and so you have this kind of alternative form of sensory information that's coming from elsewhere. It's coming from this um, orthogonal domain to which we normally don't have access. Does that make sense? A little bit complicated, right? It probably makes more sense to Dan, so I'll let him come in. But I, I, I'm getting the gist, yeah. I'll, I'm always honest on this. I could pretend that I'm going, oh, absolutely, yeah. It's, but. Like, it's like, you know, it's like if you switch, um, in a very crude kind of analogy, it's, it's just like if you switch 
on an old radio set, you switch to a new channel. What's happening there? Well, you know, all that's happening is that you're the, the radio the radio receiver is picking up a different frequency. You changed the way that um, you know this little crystal inside operates, and you allowed it to pick up a different frequency. It's that kind of thing. It's slightly different, uh, but basically, that's basically what's happening. Your brain is moving from from a state in which it, um, it it naturally picks up information from this reality. Then, in the presence of DMT, that is disruptions, reorganization of the patterns of information your brain generates, which allows it. Uh, to, to pick up information from from elsewhere and then starts to build an entirely new model. And that new model is the world that you experience under the influence of DMT. Dan? That, that's really interesting because that's one of the confounding things to me too. I, I've been to places where it's legal to experience some of these things, never DMT, but mushrooms at the very least. And I, I've had the experience where reality kind of snapped and smudged and the trees became, you know, circuitry reaching into the sky. And it, it's all very, very crazy. <clears throat> but one one of the experiences I had, you actually just made me think of it, was where I kind of thought of myself as, as swimming through water like a fish, but only the water was consciousness in the universe. So mm. our antennas are kind of picking up these uh, or kind of gaining an emergent property through the medium that we're in, I guess, depending on how we move. Um, and it, it made me think of how people are very, you know, they'll do meditation and they'll kind of gain some of the same experiences through, you know, years and years of meditation. Um, and I've heard it argued that that's kind of a I guess a good word for it is a, a purer path instead of this quick activation route. Uh, what, what do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, there is, there is kind of a, or sometimes the kind of a, some kind of tension between those who feel that, um, psychedelics are kind of a, as you say, too quick of a, a route to these kind of states of consciousness. And, and it's certainly true that somebody who takes DMT and they're kind of unprepared with, to have uh, an extremely kind of shockingly profound altered states of consciousness can get into trouble, uh, for sure. But, um, and I think that actually they complement each other. I think psychedelics and, and, and meditation or meditative practices, um, ritual practices, uh, this kind of thing, can be very useful in preparing oneself for these kind of states of consciousness. Uh, but I don't think that there, there, there needs to be kind of a fight between those who say you should only do it using meditation or those who should say you should do it using psychedelics. I, mean, I think they are actually different states of consciousness. Um, I mean, I hear some people say that they can reach a DMT state and have a breakthrough DMT experience just by breathing exercises. I don't know if that's true. Um, but it, even if it is true, it's probably, it's not as efficient and as, as effective as, as simply administering the drug. We have an, an irrational, um, an irrational fear, which comes from decades of, of prohibition. We have this irrational fear of putting molecules into our body. We'd never fear putting food or, or water or nutrition into our body but we have a fear of putting other molecules into our body that are designed to stimulate our brain in a particular manner. And I think that's, you know, it's kind of arbitrary uh, in a sense. You know? So but these are molecular technologies, I, I, I think, to, to call them to say that they're drugs and that there's something dirty about that particular path towards a particular altered state of consciousness. I don't think that really makes any sense. 
um, you know, any more than someone insisting on using a horse-drawn carriage rather than uh, getting on a plane if you want to travel to the other side of the world. I mean, it kind of it doesn't really make any sense. So, so I think, yeah, you can use meditation and you can reach altered states of consciousness using the meditative, meditative practices for sure. But I don't think that, that – they're certainly not mutually exclusive. Were these substances being um, found in nature so that they're there? And, and some of this, I'm, no doubt, is in your book, Alien Information Theory, and the links to the book will be within the description as well. You, you've talked about, you know, going back to civilizations communicating with God or their variation of gods over the years. Do you mm. think these substances are put here deliberately? Or is it just by happenstance we come across these substances? Well, I have kind of speculated on this. I mean, as, as I was saying earlier, it, it, it's kind of, it, there's something kind of curious and uncanny about the fact that this, the most naturally, the most common naturally occurring psychedelic that's kind of everywhere, everywhere. You know, if you look out the window now, you can probably see half a dozen plants that contain varying concentrations of DMT. Uh, it's like the message, it's like there's this message that's been kind of implanted in our, in our reality. Uh, and that we kind of have to learn to detect and then to kind of decode, which basically means understanding this molecule, isolating it, and learning to use it. Um, so, so yeah, it is curious that, that this molecule that's everywhere, this very simple molecule, this isn't some rare, uh, incredibly rare and exotic molecule that you have to you know, you have to find some experienced organic chemist to make it in a lab for you over several days. You know, this is this is this is extremely common uh, and naturally occurring, and, and, and that's kind of strange that, that, that this ubiquitous molecule would also just happen to be this perfect switch. You know, it's a, this clean switch to an, uh, to another reality. It doesn't put you in a kind of a drunken state where you have suggestions of another world or something like that. It's not like an opium-induced haze uh, or, you know, some kind of pipe dream state. This is, this is clean and brutal. Um, your reality, your normal waking world is switched off, is, is destroyed within seconds and replaced with this perfectly formed, uh, crystalline, beautifully geometric structure filled with these intelligent beings. It's like it's meant to be. But you found this new channel of reality, and this DMT is the molecule uh, that can that provide the switch. Now, let's talk about, you've mentioned a few times now, those intelligent beings, okay? Now, mm -hmm. obviously, that UFO podcast, and there's a, a massive focus on UFOs, of course. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would be called something else. Now, what, what is your take on the, the UFO phenomenon for you? Is it a case of the, there's one thing at play here where we've got visitors from another dimension, planet, reality, all of the above? And then for you, where does a substance like DMT come into the conversation? Well, I think, um, so I think when people think about aliens or mention aliens, it's the assumption normally, the implicit assumption is that they come from elsewhere within our universe, so some other star system, Zeta Reticuli, or or, or, or whatever, right? The Andromeda, the Andromeda, what is it? The Andromeda something constellation, the, whatever. The, the Palladians, the Palladians. The Palladians, that's the one. Yeah, they always come from the Palladians, don't they? Yeah, uh, and that's the assumption. And and I don't discount this idea because I, 
if, if I was to bet money on it, I would say that the universe is probably teeming with life. Um, but um, I think we shouldn't restrict um, our conception of life to mean uh, wet-brained biological beings that, that kind of move around, that occupy a kind of a biological form like we occupy. I think that's the assumption. We have this kind of anthropocentric assumption that um, that aliens are going to be kind of not exactly like us, but they're going to be at least physical living organisms, carbon-based probably, carbon and water-based, um, and you know they're going to have brains, kind of wet brains. But I think that's very very short-sighted. I think when you um, when you when you think about the, the trajectory, and people have speculated about what is the typical trajectory of an intelligent um, species that evolves somewhere in the universe, and and you basically you can, in my talk at, uh, for contacts in the desert, actually I, I talk about this extensively. So you have you can uh, separate into basically three phases. You have the, the pre-technological phase. So that's everything that happened in our case before kind of a hundred years ago, right? So this was the, the phase before which we had uh, any ability to think about contacting with aliens, right? You know, there's no way for us to imagine leaving the Earth and flying away in spaceships or even sending messages. Uh, it, it was kind of beyond that, right? So, um, so, those, so if you think about all the species in, in the universe that are at that level, we can kind of forget about those unless we happen to stumble across one of these low-level species as we're kind of searching the galaxy that seems quite unlikely so we can forget about that so there might be a lot of that in the universe but we're unlikely to come across it um then you have the technological phase and this is where we are so this is when a species basically is in a position to begin to comprehend the idea of alien intelligence elsewhere from where wherever they are uh, and to even think about how they might communicate so we're in that state, in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, sending electromagnetic pulses into the sky with the hope that maybe in a few lifetimes we'll get a reply, um, something like that. Um, but this phase is probably quite narrow, and, and astrobiologists and physicists and kind of cognitive scientists have kind of thought about this. And the general feeling is that once a species reaches the kind of phase that we're in, where they can think about... Um, leaving the, the, their own planets and can build the kind of complex computational system that would enable this. They're probably only a, a few hundred years from actually not just leaving the planet, but actually dispensing with their biological form entirely. So you have this post-biological phase is speculated that exists after the technological phase. And so a post-biological phase, we would think of that as kind of science fiction ideas of uploading our intelligence or uploading our consciousness onto a computer. And this is kind of a, it's almost become a cliche now, this idea that we, we might eventually be able to do that and get and dispense entirely with our physical biological form. Uh, but already we can see these kind of things happening. We can see ourselves merging more and more with machinery, um, you know, implants uh, and kind of a, a Attachments, you know, Elon Musk is talking about you know this Neuralink thing, and, and um, these are not new ideas. But you can see us kind of re reaching towards 
having not having to have a, a physical uh, biological wet body and merging with the machines perhaps but then eventually we would actually dispense with the machine entirely uh, and exist in a in a purely post biological form uh, which is actually i think quite difficult to to comprehend what that would look like it it's not going to be stacks of hard drives and servers you know on some kind of dark planet kind of running a civilization but i think it's more likely that uh, a highly advanced intelligence will eventually discover a means of instantiating themselves deeply within the lower level structure of, of, of reality basically so they they learn how to instantiate their intelligence and, and their consciousness basically um uh, uh, using kind of low-level reality uh, as a, a computational substrate, uh, rather than using transistors, you know, and, and, and computer chips, that kind of thing. Um, so I think if that's true, um, then it's likely that the vast majority, because once you reach that stage, you're, eff- you're effectively godlike, you know, compared to us, um, uh, and, and that stage could last for billions and billions of years, right? So we, we, we kind of sat in this narrow little phase where we think everything must be, whereas actually the, the vast majority of life in the universe is, is very likely to be post-biological, uh, completely, completely unlike anything that we're familiar with as being living and intelligent, uh, which means that they are going to be completely transparent to any of our normal modes of communication. Um, they're not going to be responding to radio signals. Uh, they're not, you're not going to see them flying around in the sky necessarily unless they choose to manifest in that way. But I think that's, that's the kind of the, the, the somewhat frightening proposition is that there may well be or is highly likely to be intelligence and life and intelligence in the universe that is so advanced and so strange uh, that it is inconceivable. Uh, and we have no idea what to look for or any kind of biosignature or, or intelligent signature um, and, and of course we can also extrapolate to other universes you know we, we've no idea about what intelligence in other universes might look like so so, in, so what i'm getting to when it comes to psychedelics is that psychedelics might be a tool uh, for accessing uh, intelligences that exist in forms that uh, are completely uh, transparent to our normal modes of communication and are completely inconceivable to us and that exist at a very, very low level of, of reality. And somehow DMT is, is perturbing neural activity such that it, uh, it kind of gates access to the kind of the flow of information from these uh, very, very bizarre and unimaginably strange intelligences. So are we talking kind of, um, it sounds like, a religious experience, quite frankly. Um, yeah. And I know there have been some studies where some, uh, I, I'm not sure kind of what level, but some religious folk were kind of brought in to be given some of these substances and, and kind of see see what they see what they experienced. And I was just wondering if you'd mind talking about these substances as a religious experience. You know, maybe, maybe the burning bush was something psychedelic and not actually, you know, a, a god in matter, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, an, I mean, this kind of, I mean, uh, in terms of DMT being a religious experience, yes, I mean, 
look, you, you smoke this molecule and you're confronted with a, an all-powerful um, a being of, of such immense power and intelligence that, you, that it completely takes your breath away. It's something, you know, um, a being that's been around since for trillions of years, it feels like, in, in, a, in a place that's existed long, long before our universe existed. If that isn't the closest to an experience of a, a confrontation with a god, then I don't know what is. Um, so in that sense, sure, that's that's a religious experience. If you want to see it like that, it, it doesn't surprise me that people come away from this and saying, you know, I, I was confronted with, uh, with with God um, or with a God, whether it's the God that they imagine or or, or who knows, but. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm, I rarely think about so much the connection. I mean, other people do. I mean, Rick Strassman, for example, he likes to think about the connection between the empty state and kind of the old prophecies. Of it. He goes and he looks at the Old Testament and, and Judaism and stuff like that. But it's, it's way out of my remit, I'm afraid. You know, it's like DMT on its own without, all, without trying to somehow connect it to... Um, of extant um, human religious Abrahamic traditions or whatever, I think that can kind of cloud your judgment. I think it needs to be confronted um, on its own. It, it, it doesn't need uh, any kind of embellishments. It doesn't need to be tied to um, the kind of religious traditions that, that we're kind of already familiar with in, on earth, I think. I think it's, it, it's, it's completely alien uh, in, the, in the truest sense of the word, alien, that it's completely other. Uh, these are intelligences normally in beings that, that are completely unlike anything you could ever imagine. They're not anything like, in my opinion, um, the kind of beings normally that you would meet uh, in the Old Testament. But then again, I'm not an expert on the Old Testament, so maybe some people would disagree with that. Although, although certainly with... Um, some people do describe seeing beings and godlike creatures that, that are more reminiscent of the kind of uh, gods you would meet in, in Hinduism, you know, or kind of the more uh, sort of Eastern, the older Eastern uh, religious traditions. Um, but again, that's, uh, I, I, I don't really think about that that much. I, I think about these being, I kind of treat them as they are, you know, I, I kind of meet them face to face, so to speak, and don't try and necessarily assume that they, 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 um, they're related to these these gods from these pantheistic or polytheistic religions. That's a that's a really interesting point because in anything esoteric, I think people have ideas about what certain words mean and symbols and what they bring to the table rather than just mm -hmm. facing what's in front of them, which these substances almost make us do, you know, they center us in that, that moment. Um, <clears throat> so I just wanted to ask in your experience, is it different substances kind of take you to different entities consistently, or is it just a wild card every time? A bit of both. A bit of both. So, I mean, DMT, um, there is some overlap uh, with certain drugs, um, certain molecules. So DMT, there's a, certain, there's a number. I mean, it's, 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 it's a diverse ecology within, that, within this space. And that there are many types of beings with 
diverse characters, diverse intent, diverse forms. Um, but there, there seem to be a certain, uh, certain, certain types of, of entities that are often encountered, including, of course, the, the, the most famous of all the DMT entities, which are the machine owls, uh, of Terence McKenna fame, of course. And, and, and these kind of small, lively, giggly, sprightly beings that do vary a lot in their form, actually. Um, the way they appear, but they all they're unified by their character, and they're, they're these small, lively kind of uh, beings that are often extremely excited and excitable, and kind of keen to kind of show you around and stuff. Uh, and then there are there, there are kind of more like guides, more godlike, powerful, intelligent, wise beings that will kind of show you around. Uh, and then there are just very, very strange and bizarre. Kind of insectoid or reptilian kind of beings, uh, and then often it's it's more of just of a, a felt presence of some extremely profound entity, um, and uh, so that's kind of typical of DMT. Now, w- when you take other um, powerful psychedelics, so salvia is the one I think that often comes to mind. If you if you want to kind of find a, a molecule that's kind of in the same weight category, so to speak, uh, almost as DMT, then pure salvinorin, not just the, the plant, but the actual, the actual purified molecule, salvinorin. Uh, this is um, you know, ferocious and um, it tears apart the fabric of, of reality with, without pulls no punches at all. And often within that space, people are confronted with, with intelligences. And sometimes the same, some of the similar kind of beings that you will see on DMT. So, so elves, for example, are not um, that rare in, in high-dose experiences as well. So there is some overlap. The structure and the geometry of the space seems to be very different, as if you're kind of in a different part uh, of uh, an extremely complex structure, um, um, but but sometimes there is some kind of overlap, but, but they're very very different. So I think yeah, that they're, they're taking you to different parts of some kind of broader reality, and you know we we occupy this very thin slice, I think, uh, of reality, this very very thin sliver uh, of what's possible, and we assume that this universe is kind of this grand. Thing. And it is, in a way, from our perspective. But actually, uh, in terms of the bigger picture, I think we, we occupy a very, very slim slice within some very complex and vast and unimaginably strange uh, uh, kind of geometry, this kind of hyperdimensional structure. And somehow these molecules allow you to, to peak, appear into this different region within the space. Would it be fair enough to to look then at different levels of psychedelics that w- when you're taking some of the, the lesser impactful psychedelics, when people are having these experiences where they're seeing UFOs, UAPs, alien beings, whatever it might be, that when it's within our own reality, they're taking the lesser impactful substances. But like you say, DMT takes you over to another side altogether. And that's that's why someone just sitting outside getting high or taking mushrooms 
will say that they've they've seen a light in the sky or they've seen a craft or is that potentially there or do you think there's just not the same correlation between what people see in our own plane of existence i think um there's so with if you take a high enough dose of, of magic mushroom you can actually enter some of the similar states of consciousness you, you can reach with dmt dmt is just much more efficient at doing it very very quickly but you have to take quite a lot of mushrooms to get to that and it's quite a, a rough ride uh but but I, I think it doesn't have to be all or nothing i don't think necessarily um it has to be either you're here or you're there there is these kind of um what's the word i'm looking for these kind of uh, regions where you're kind of not, neither here nor there where your brain is kind of almost like tuned to two channels um so to speak you know that 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 space in between dmt uh, is a clean switch between channel what i call channel consensus reality and then, then like channel dmt whereas the other molecule is kind of pushing nudging the dial and so i think um certainly i, I think um, it's it's not unreasonable, and people do experience entities at, at, at relatively low doses. And certainly, the presence of intelligence is is seems to be a common, uh, almost universal experience with with psychedelics. And I think even if you are not kind of tumbling through these elfin playgrounds in this hyperdimensional space, that the, the the sense of the presence of this this intelligence pervading reality in some way. Uh, can still be there, uh, and I think perhaps that you're you're sensing that um, even though you, you're not quite fully immersed in their realm. And then DMT, if you you take that, that will take you right there, and then you'll kind of be confronted with these intelligences that before with the other psychedelics you only kind of maybe sense. Now I'll let Dan ask his question first. Then we'll get to listener questions because I've got a follow up on your response, which talks about entities coming into our reality. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that I'll, I'll leave that to the listener who's come up with that question, and we'll go through those. But Dan, do you want to carry on? That's actually timed perfectly because my my question is kind of around that theme. So we can just we can smoothly transition. Um, nice. One one of the big things about um, I'm not sure if you're familiar. You you probably are with uh, David Fravor and Alex Dietrich's encounter with the Tic Tac back in uh, yeah back in 2004. One of the big things about it for me was the way the craft was moving, and then the kind of the instant jump to that cat point. And I've always wondered if maybe they could kind of see see a long exposure of our time and maybe have a different experience of time to what we're seeing. So a fast speed to us is actually a slow speed to them kind of thing. Um, but knowing that psychedelics kind of affect that flow of time for us, um, almost in a way that, you know, we, we would see that. Um, part of me wonders if these things are vehicles to kind of come across from these other spaces that you're talking about and explore ours. What, what would you say to that? Oh goodness! Yeah. Uh, so, so you are you suggesting these that psychedelics are vehicles? Um, well, psychedelics could be vehicles for us to kind of traverse those spaces, but maybe the Tic Tac is something that you know these entities have to being to come into our material world. Yeah, I think it's the answer is I I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows, and I think that's. Sometimes you just have to accept that we actually, 
we know very, very little about um, our place within the larger structure of reality. And I think that's, that's the one thing that, the, that, that, that psychedelics generally demonstrate, is how little we know and how much else there is that's normally hidden and normally we don't have access to. Uh, and so when we, you, know, you see these, these beings in the sky, these Tic Tac or whatever, um, you might be seeing a manifest that you are, you're seeing a manifestation of something that shouldn't be possible. Um, and it's not possible from our frame of reference, if you like. Um, but, but what psychedelics do, they, they give you a, a completely new frame of reference and show you actually, it's like they kind of show you outside, take you outside sometimes in a very, very literal way, uh, our normal frame of reference. And they show you things that shouldn't be possible. Um, you know, the, DM, the, the spaces that you go to under the influence of DMT, they are not possible. They're not just strange or unusual or surprising. They are impossible. Um, and they shouldn't, shouldn't happen. This drug shouldn't exist. This drug shouldn't have these effects. Uh, and so I think, yeah, I think reality is stranger than we can suppose. Again, to echo Terence McCann, who echoed someone else who I forgot. Um, so, so, yeah, I think perhaps you're seeing that. Clearly, um, we don't it, – it's perhaps something of a, again, a, a somewhat uh, anthropocentric assumption that these, these craft that we're seeing are just operating some advanced propulsion system. It's as simple as that. Uh, but actually, they could be doing something far, far stranger. Uh, in the way that they're manip manipulating the structure of space-time or manipulating the very structure, the foundational structure of reality, and even manipulating us, you know, because we are embedded. We are in reality is, is a relationship uh, between this, this, these models that we construct and what's going on, you know, the information that's occurring outside of our brains. And, and, and there's always this interaction. And, and so we're, we're embedded within reality uh, and and yet at the same time cut off from from many aspects of the way that reality functions uh, and so so that's what I would say in terms of these these tic tacs is that there could be something very very unusual going on that that we simply have no ability to comprehend so we can only speculate within there's a very limited confines of what we think might be possible anti anti-gravity propulsion or or, you know, some kind of relativistic explanation, but it could actually be far, far weirder than that. And we always use our, you know, com common frameworks that we know uh, to kind of talk about these things. At the moment, it's computers and simulations. You know, you go back further and it's something else entirely. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, I'll hand over to Andy for uh, the audience Q&As. Thank you. I had one more question, and I, you can count this as a listener question, but from myself. Um, have you ever had your own sighting or experience not under any influence of psychedelics of what you would deem a UFO? I haven't. I've, I, I've always wanted to, you know, but um, it's never. It's not happened so far. I, I kind of interested in, um, what is it, Stephen Greer's C, C5 thing? His C5, oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, 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 because he seems to have – I was actually – he was supposed to, at this contact in the desert last year that was cancelled, uh, he was going to give one of his all-night in the desert um, things where – one of these field work things where you go in the desert with him and a small group of people and 
you would shine the lasers in the sky and try and make contact. So I was really looking forward to doing that. I thought maybe I can see these, but it didn't happen. So hopefully next year uh, I might be able to do that. But no, so far I've never seen a ghost. You know, I've been interested in ghosts all my life. I've never seen one of those. Never seen a vampire, or as far as I'm aware of. But I've seen some fucking strange things. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, listen. That's the first listener question you've probably answered quite a bit of, and what Dan asked, and a bit of what you've said there. Now, Ash asked the question, and I'll ask it anyway. Does Doctor Gallimore subscribe to the theory that entities from other realms, uh, e.g., DMT or other dimensions, can bleed over into our reality during normal waking consciousness? And if so, by what mechanism does he deem this possible? Now, we've talked about UFOs and aliens and whatnot, but mm. even your, your mention of ghosts, is that all one and the same? Well, not necessarily. I mean, uh, well, ghosts is a whole different topic. But I think, look, if, if we can access their domain, we'd have to assume that it's entirely kind of asymmetric. In other words, it's kind of one way only, that only we can access their domain which would be slightly weird considering um, they seem to occupy the, the higher level of reality. You know, they're, they occupy this, this highly complex structure. You know, they, they seem to occupy the bulk of reality, if you like, you know, much more of it than we do. And so it would be kind of weird uh, if, if, if it could only operate in that direction. So I think if we, if we, if we believe or take seriously the idea that DMT does allow us to access their domain, uh, then I think it follows that it's likely they are able to access our domain. Now, what's the mechanism? Um, I don't know um, because we have not, we have we have no idea of, of, of their kind of capabilities or I- indeed the relationship between uh, our reality and their reality. Right. So, how do they interact? What, is the, what, what are the conduits through which information can flow? And that's really the key here. How does information and energy flow between our, our space and their space? And what are the rules that govern that? And what are the mechanisms that govern that? We have, we have no idea. They're much in a much better position um, to understand the way that the whole thing works. And so um, I think it's highly likely if, if these are autonomous, intelligent beings that really do exist in some other domain, I think it's extremely likely that they have the ability to, if they wanted to, um, to, to interact and even uh, um, to appear in some form in our reality. And that, that may be a, an explanation uh, for these, for, for many kind of UFO or alien, alien sightings. It might not be that they've, they've traveled from some other planet, but that they, that they have deliberately taken a, a form, uh, you know, a visual form in our reality, whereas in fact they, they, they exist normally in some other place that's actually completely outside of our universe. Barry had the question, can you ask Andrew if he thinks the DMT elves are entities that most people saw in Richard Strassman's 90s DMT trials mm. are in people's experience by prior discussion or suggestion? Or are they possibly a genuine entity communicating with us that they're all accessing through DMT? Um, so, I mean, it's a common kind of argument that these that the machine elves are very, very famous. And they're very, very famous because of, of Terence McKenna. And so it's, it's a reasonable, if you're a skeptic, right, you to say, well, 
People listen to Terence McKenna. He talks about machine hours all the time. Thus, therefore, when they smoke DMT, they're going to they're gonna see what they expect to see and what Terence McKenna told them they will see. That's, this is always the problem, right, when, you, when you're... Um, when you're dealing with a drug that has a kind of a long history, a relatively long history and lots of trip reports is that you can't very hard to kind of go into it completely blind, uh, kind of a blank slate and have that experience. But we can go back. I mean, Terence McKenna was talking about machine hours in the, from the eighties, really the late eighties, I would say. Um, and, but we can go back to the earliest trip reports. And we did that. I wrote a paper with, Dr. David Luke of Greenwich University, uh, who's the UK's foremost DMT guy. Um, and we, we looked at, we actually interviewed Stephen Zara, the, this guy who discovered DMT. Uh, this was a few years ago. And we looked at all the papers from the very first studies from 1956 onwards. Um, and we saw the same kind of reports. We saw um, kind of non-human Entities of various characters, you know, orange people, non-human orange creatures, uh, and we also saw elves or what were described as little dwarf-like creatures that that moved that moved about. Um, so obviously they didn't say I saw machine elves because that's that's a that's a def- that's definitely a Terence McKenna's terminology there. But the idea of, of small lively beings in the DMT space um, cannot be um, cannot be ascribed only to Terence McKenna. This is not a pure McKennaism, but seems to be a feature of the experience going back to the very first study. That was in the very first study uh, that, that this woman, I forget her name, uh, described um, seeing these small creatures moving about. So, so maybe if they are, you know, they are there. You uh, you just made the hair stand up on my arm. I'm someone who who has uh, sleep paralysis regularly at a specific time every year, usually towards the end of March. And I used to think I would see a orange woman in a coat, but oh. since paying more attention, it's just a formless orange entity. Right. So yeah, well, my was... hair just went up on my arm. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. This woman described horrible orange people. They were they weren't human. They were hurting her. She, she described being hurt by these horrible orange people. So yeah, maybe it's the same ones. Interesting. <laughs> uh, Barry had a follow up, but uh, and I've probably got a follow up on his follow up. Uh, during an out of body experience whilst on magic mushrooms, I became convinced that our souls report back to somewhere whilst we are dreaming. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, I mean, I don't discount these ideas. Um, what do you mean by a soul? I don't know. I mean, okay, what can we say about this? Uh, people have reported uh, during, and he's not the only one to report this kind of experience um, with psychedelics. So, for example, the idea of taking high-dose magic mushrooms and people often experience kind of waking up in a, in a room, in a pod. So a friend of mine described waking up in a pod surrounded by loads of other pods. People are asleep apparently uh, but imagine like a, like a transparent pod and they they opened up woke up out of this pod and there were these two aliens around them uh, and they were ex- explaining the aliens were explaining to my friend that they had kind of brought him back for some kind of routine maintenance i guess something like that um which is which sounds kind of weird 
Um, so it suggests that, in fact, that we are somehow um, being kept or maintained in this other alien domain. It's a very Matrix kind of idea. Well, yeah, um, that's what comes to mind straight away with the pods. Yeah, and, right, yeah. exactly. And then, and yet we are, um, you know, so we're having this kind of experience now, which is which is kind of hallucinated in a second. We are, we are dreaming the dream now. And that, that taking the psychedelic takes us back to kind of base reality or our true reality. And that's something that uh, appears again and again in, in, in high-dose psychedelics. DMT, there's this remarkable, profound, unshakable sense of familiarity and deja vu about it. It's almost like there's a sense of these intelligences know that they, they know the story. They, they know the full picture. Uh, but they won't tell you, but they're kind of prodding you, kind of going, do you get it yet? You know, do you get the joke? It's like we're, we're part of some elaborate, grand cosmic joke, and that, uh, and that our, our kind of existence is, is more of a, a sideshow, so to speak, and that DMT is taking us back to that. And um, with salvia as well, it's quite common. Salvia can be quite menacing. Um, DMT is normally has this kind of, normally has this more of a comical ambience. They prod you and tease you um, about these things. But with salvia, often they will mock you in a very kind of, almost kind of nasty way. And a number of people, I was actually speaking to someone um, on another podcast just, just a couple of weeks ago who's describing this, this experience that I've heard about on salvia, where somebody will be shown their, their life uh, and then they will be kind of on a stage and then the audience starts kind of jeering and mocking them and they realize that their entire existence has been this elaborate Truman show kind of joke, uh, some kind of crazy show that's just ended uh, and you're kind of left completely unmoored and kind of cast into this ocean of uh, in a cast adrift and everything that you thought you were is, is kind of laughed at and you're kind of shown, you know, this was all just a joke, dude, and you're actually nothing and you've never been human. Humans have never existed and that universe never existed and you're here and you've always been here. And it's like, you know, you, you can imagine these can be really terrifying, uh, you know, ontologically uh, shaking kind of experiences uh, that, that you can have with these molecules that are quite difficult to integrate and quite difficult to get over, I think. Um, yeah, it's not all love and light in these places. Now, for people who want more detail on what you've talked about, and there's still a few more questions to go, I'm going to be recommending, obviously, <clears throat> they, they pick up your book, Alien Information Theory. However, you've mentioned like, The Matrix and The Truman Show there. Yeah. Are there any movies that you've ever watched that you've went, do you know what, that's probably a lot closer to the truth and what you think is going on at all? Or is it just little notions within that you, you pick up? Yeah, I don't think any, any apart from The Matrix, which did a, you know, a decent job of getting this, this kind of idea of, of, of us living in a kind of a simulated or dreamt reality. Um, there are, probably are movies, but I don't think none that I've come across that have really kind of nailed it. And there are lots of science fiction books that have dealt with this. I mean, if you read people like, uh, you know, Philip K. Dick and, and Greg Egan, who's a really good kind of modern writer who deals with this idea these kind of ideas as well but yeah there's a lot of that around but yeah most of the time it's you know my book that you mentioned alien information theory that kind of 
I kind of absorbed all of this stuff, uh, all of the kind of neuroscience and a lot of this kind of simulation argument stuff and and all of these trip reports over over decades, a couple of decades, and kind of brought it together into sort of a co- coherent narrative, my my kind of world view of what 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 it might all mean, what what everything kind of it's kind of like I guess kind of like a modern creation myth in a way. And I, and I try to deal with our origins all the way up to our ultimate um our ultimate destiny. Um but yeah um yeah what can I say? Couple more listener questions to go. Um, Adam asks, "Can you ask Dr. Gallimore about his thoughts or experiences with people microdosing psilocybin and/or LSD for improved cognitive ability?" Yeah, I mean, there's uh, it's mainly anecdotal at the moment. I mean, the, the studies there's very limited scientific studies. I think there was a recent study that was published that looked at um, whether microdosing psilocybin or LSD. So normally, so microdosing normally. It, it's, it's taking a very small, what's considered to be a sub-psychedelic dose of a psychedelic. So normally around 0.1 dried grams of mushrooms is about right. Uh, and then maybe sort of 10 micrograms of um, LSD. So not enough to have a psychedelic effect, but enough to kind of get this kind of energetic lift. Uh, people do experience or claim to experience positive benefits and creativity and just motivation and energy and yeah the 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 studies that have been done the the very small study that i read showed no significant uh, benefit or showed no significant effect but personally it's a very personal thing if it works for you um you know if taking a sugar tablet in the morning and thinking it's something else makes makes your day better and makes you get more done or makes you happier then you know if you're taking a placebo, basically, um, then so what? You know, it's it's all about the effects. And I think uh, with the same with with microdosing, maybe it's having an effect. Maybe it's part effect, part um, intent, and placebo. Um, but who cares, really? Um, if it works, it works. And you know, if these drugs aren't physiologically harmful. You're not going to damage yourself. I mean, there is some suggestion that psilocybin um, taking that continuously might affect certain serotonin receptors that exist in the heart and that this might cause problems with taking uh, magic mushrooms every day at these, these kind of doses. So that, there, is, there are potential concerns there that David, Nichol, uh, David Nichols suggested that, that that could be an issue. Uh, but it's all it's all personal preference. If, if it works for you, then then do it. Dan, you wanted to come in on that? Yeah, I, I just wanted to back Andrew on the whole placebo thing. I, I went through a thing with um, Darren Brown in the UK where he gave us a drug called Romiodin. And you can watch this. You can see me on, on the program. You? <laughs> um, yeah, I was in it. I was in it. So I was in the group that took the drug to get over a fear. And my fear was sharks. I had a recurring dream where I would be sinking in a cage diving cage. And I, I kind of had to try and get past that. And it, it was a really interesting joke because when they revealed that it was all placebo, of course, we'd been using this drug for about six months. And some people yeah. in the in the groups literally used it to clear up dermatitis on their hands Mm. and it was placebo so the power of the mind is incredible and we really don't understand it yet 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I think um, placebo is seen, it's, it's, it's almost a, not a dirty word, but people see it as a, if you, if you claim something as placebo effect, they, they almost feel like you're trying to con them or something, or they're conning themselves. But no, it's just, if you, if you, if you strongly believe in that, that something is going to have an effect, then it will. And, and in a positive and in a negative way as well. So if you think that something's going to get worse or go bad or you're going to you know, get sick or then it's more likely to happen. Um, the same with believing that um, this placebo can cure dermatitis or, or whatever. And perhaps it almost certainly has an, an influence with these low-dose psychedelics. And it might even kind of amplify the placebo effect in a way and kind of priming making that effect of your mind, so amplifying the placebo effect a little bit in a way. Uh, it's, yeah, a little bit complicated. I think it'll be a while before we really know what's going on with microdosing, but it's probably not going to harm you if you want to try Vanessa has a question uh, for Dr. Gallimore. Uh, does he perceive a prejudice against psychedelic close encounters in the UFO community? And also, what does he see as the value of exploring DMT realms, especially for prolonged periods of time? Well, I don't. I've not really noticed any kind of prejudice. I mean, I'm uh, this. My kind of um, interaction with the UFO community has been relatively recent. So normally, so since I've been, I was speaking at contact in the desert. Then obviously, that brings me into contact with. UFO people and alien people, but I've, no one's ever expressed any any negative. Most people are just very interested in the idea. I think uh, yeah. people in the UFO community they're open minded generally, right? I mean that's the idea. Is they're open open to the poss- possibilities that many people would dismiss. So no, no prejudices that I've experienced so far. Touchwood. Um, and then the second part was um, what's the benefit? Well. <laughs> You know, in my opinion, if if we discover that um, there is a, a large ecology of advanced intelligences that exist outside of our universe, uh, and not only that they exist outside of our universe, but that we can actually access them and can establish stable communication with them, that would be by far the most profound and important and earth-shattering discovery in the history of the human race. Nothing would come close to that. I mean, um, confirming the existence of aliens from another planet is one thing, uh, but we kind of, in a way, we half expect that. But the idea that there, there are these unimaginably advanced alien intelligences that exist outside of our universe and that we can actually access them essentially become, in a sense, interdimensional citizens. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that would just uproot all of our kind of fundament, fundamental ontological assumptions you know, about where we are within reality and what reality is and what is and isn't possible. So that's why I think it's important um, because – the, the the potential if if these are these places really do exist they really are out there they are, really are intelligences then it's yeah the, the payoff is potentially huge and so in terms of the extended state DMT well the DMT state is lasts normally a few minutes it's five minutes you're in there 
you're kind of you look around wide-eyed for a few minutes, kind of get your bearings, then you're being dragged back. So it's not an the normal way of using DMT is not an ideal way, certainly not a diplomatic way to be navigating someone else's domain. Um, if you really want to take this space DMT space seriously and really want to establish communication, then you need to be able to enter the space and remain within the space for extended periods of time. It's 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 the polite thing to do as well. It's kind of rude to burst into someone's universe and kind of look around wide eyed and then bugger off again. Uh, it's, it's not the way to behave. You know, we are we are we are kind of think of ourselves as kind of interdimensional diplomats, right? We have to behave like we're ambassadors for our species. <laughs> We've heard a few analogies about muddy bootprints and different entities are, you know, coming into your house and leaving the bootprints and here's us cruising right. into different domains un- uninvited and, and yeah. being hauled back out. So maybe we are the trespassers in that sense, like you say. Um, yeah. Tim has a question and he would love to know, do you see any parallels between the DMT and just machine elves that Terence McKenna and many others describe and the alleged encounters that some abductees experience? And further to that, do you think the UFO phenomena could be seen as a sort of true hallucination, as reality itself tripping? Yeah, uh, well, there's a few questions there. Um, so, so certainly abduction, many people have suggested that perhaps that there is some kind of relationship between the DMT state and alien abductions. Um, so it's, it's, it's no longer assumed amongst the people kind of in the, the abduction community, if there is such a thing. Um, but so then certainly John Mack, who studied abductions more than anybody else, I think, this Harvard psychiatrist back in the, in the 90s, I think, or 80s. Uh, but anyway, he certainly drifted away from the, the assumption that, that people were being literally lifted out of their bed and that, that actually there might be, um, this might be going on in some kind of other, other dimension, some kind of other realm. Um, and um, certainly in the DMT state, um, some people do experience being in highly technological alien environments and being experimented upon, having things done to them, being probed, this kind of thing. Um, so that there are clear parallels there. And, you know, are these aliens manipulating your neuro neurochemistry in some way? Uh, uh, when they abduct you and sort of bringing you into, into their space rather than physically, they're kind of altering your neurochemistry such that you can kind of absorb information from their domain in a way. Um, that might be possible. Whether they're using DMT to do that, I don't know. Probably not, but who knows? Um, yeah, so that, I think there are one, one thing you don't tend to see in, in the DMT state are the classic gray aliens. Um, that they, they to, don't tend to appear, which might suggest, I don't know, maybe it suggests that these grey aliens, this is kind of a suit, right, that, that, that they wear in, in our kind of physical reality or not really their true form. And maybe in the DMT state, you're seeing closer to the true form of these, these kind of aliens. Who knows? That's speculation. Um, okay. And what was the next part of that question? Uh, is reality itself tripping? Yeah, I mean, uh, reality is a kind of a controlled hallucination. As I said, you're always the world that you experience is always cons- being constructed by your brain. What changes is the, the relationship between that world you experience, that model being constructed by your brain, and the environment. So, the, the re- even though 
we are always hallucinating our world in a sense. Hallucinating is the wrong word, but it gets the, the, the impression across. We're always kind of dreaming, if you like. Um, we're, our world is always being built by our brain. Uh, what's good about this world is that it, it happens to, it's evolved, it happens to kind of be function that works, right? Um, the brain never knows what's actually kind of going on outside of the brain. It never has direct access to the environment. And yet we seem, this the model that we experience, this, this vision, waking dream or hallucination, seems to function. It allows us to navigate and to avoid predators and to find prey and to find a mate and pass on our genes, all the things that are required to survive, this model allows us to do. But it, there's nothing kind of special in, in terms of uh, kind of ontologically. There's nothing, we can't assume that the, the reality we experience normally is kind of the real world, the real thing, and that anything else that diverges from that is, is somehow false or wrong or an illusion or unreal. All worlds are experienced that we experience uh, are all built from the same stuff. They're all built from information generated by the brain. So in that sense, all worlds are equally real. So yes, when you are in normal waking life, the world you experience is real in the same way that the world you experience at the height of the DMT trip is real. All worlds are equally real. All worlds are built from information generated by a brain. But not all worlds are kind of functional uh, from a survival perspective in the same way. Uh, there was a few more listener questions from Mike and a few others, but I think they've been answered within the body of what we've talked about. Uh, Dan, you wanted to come in just on that before we start to wrap up. Yeah, I, I find the the idea of the brain and how it kind of models the world, you know, this small slice we can survive in, uh, really intriguing. And I just wanted to ask, you you know, when people, you know, they'll they'll lose a limb and they have a sense that that limb is still there. Is that yeah. the cause of that, that kind of model in the brain saying, hey, that's still... Precisely, yeah. Uh, and, and this is, so you have these, it's called phantom limb syndrome, right? So you, someone loses a limb, perhaps in an accident, and for a long period of time, they feel the limb is still there. And they feel pain as well in that limb. Um, and there was a famous doctor, I forget his name now, but um, so people would often feel they had their, they would have their arm removed or their arm would be lost in an accident. And they would feel their hand kind of, bunched up like their arm tight and it was excruciating for them uh, and there's nothing the doctors could do right because the arm isn't there uh, so how do you deal with that you can't give them muscle relaxants because it's then it's literally a phantom arm but their brain has this model uh, a completely non-functional non-adaptive model it's no longer relevant but the brain suddenly is a bit you know it doesn't know how to deal with, with the fact that there's no arm there and what this, this doctor did was got them to look in a mirror uh, and to, with one hand, start to kind of move their arm and imagine that they're moving the other arm. And so they would actually, in their brain, they would, they would start moving the phantom arm and eventually kind of loosen it up. And eventually, um, it would kind of it would free itself and all of the pain and the discomfort it would disappear. Um, and then eventually... Over the over the number of months and years, probably the actual arm itself, the brain would remove the arm from its its model. But yes, your 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 own experience of your body uh, is also a model. It's, uh, it's not there's nothing separate about that. You know, it, it's 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 yes, it's a model that that you can you can feel in this kind of sensation. But the your the the, the body that you experience is that model, and there are a number of kind of 
body illusions you can use to kind of demonstrate how that works. Uh, but yeah, it's all a model. I always like to finish uh, Andrew on a quick fire round. So I'm going to read out a couple of um, topics that we've not really touched on and you can say as little or as much as you want on each of them, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is Roswell. Um, yeah, um, I think, I don't know what happened, but I think something very weird happened. And I think it was almost certainly covered up, but much as I can say. <laughs> The next one you touched on before, I'm interested in your thoughts on CE5 and Stephen Greer. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been following Stephen Greer and the Disclosure Project for many years. Uh, he seems like a decent guy. Um, the whole, you know, the number of people that he's got kind of testifying, um, to me, is, is extremely convincing. Uh, and I, I think his approach to how you, that you treat these aliens as being beneficent and that, you, that they they might want to be contacted and that you have perhaps the ability to contact them. I think these are all great ideas. Uh, and I think the CE5 is the closest anyone's come to actually a, a plausible mechanism for actually having intentional communication with, with, with alien intelligences. Yeah. Okay. And the next one is Skinwalker Ranch. Never heard of it. <laughs> Skinwalker Ranch? <laughs> really? Okay. okay. I'll well, have to I, I, the name ring, and I, yeah, I mean, I've heard the word, but I don't like. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard Skinwalker Ranch, but I don't actually know what happened. Okay, I'll, I'll send you on some stuff. That, that's fine. Like, I think you'll be intrigued, um, or you may look at it and put it straight down. Um, how are UFOs uh, for listeners? I don't know if I mentioned this at the start, but Andrew is based out in Japan. Um, how are UFOs perceived as a as a topic in Japan? Oh, good question. That that's a really interesting question. I don't know actually. I I think people in Japan are open to the idea of uh, of spirits and the idea of kind of the the world being very much kind of animate, and that there are many many kind of gods within traditional Japanese religion. Um, and so I think the Japanese mind would would be very open to the idea of. Of aliens, but um, but it's just, I need to speak to more Japanese. I haven't really spoken to many Japanese people about UFOs and stuff. I speak to them about drugs a lot, um, but but not so much UFOs. So I need to get back to you on that one. You can tell me that one next time. Yeah. Uh, do, do you prefer the term UFO or UAP? I, I'm I'm with traditionally. Everyone knows what uh, UFO means. I think. Well, they should do. I mean, we know. Yeah. UFO just means an unidentified flying object, right? But it's yeah, it, it's it's got a troubled, um, and that people think, do you believe in UFOs? People say things like that. Of course, it's like, well, a UFO is just an unidentified flying object. And you know what I mean? I mean, like with aliens, that's that's different. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know what those terms mean, but yeah, uh, but UFOs, it's cool, right? And the last one is, what does disclosure mean to you? Yeah, that's a good question. What does disclosure mean to me? Um, well, it, you have to assume that there's something to be disclosed, and I think there is. I think there's a lot. I think there are there are people in in this world that know a hell of a lot more than we do, uh, and that, that in a sense treat us rather like children uh, for their own ends. You know, it's, it's, and 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 there are a number of 
motivations one can envisage for that, you know, whether it's keeping us in, in control and uh, maintaining their technological prowess or, uh, or just because they fear of, of what disclosure might mean. You can imagine building up all of this evidence and all of this knowledge over years and years. It's like, oh, shit, we've got like all of this stuff now, all of these alien bodies, and we've got three living in this bunker and we've got all these vehicles. It's like, how are we going to explain? Once the lie grows, like when you were a kid, it's like, okay, it's like once the, the lie, one lie leads to another and it grows and grows and grows. And eventually it's like, fuck, I should have dealt with this when it was a small lie. But now it's so big, I don't know even what, if anyone really, if a single individual understands the mechanism by which all of it would be revealed. I don't imagine there's one person set at the top. I imagine this is all compartmentalized and people know certain things. But if there's anyone who really knows the full picture, I think, I don't know if that's true. And, and thus, it, it might be difficult to actually develop a mechanism for, for disclosure. But it's, you can start to see the cracks breaking now, right? All the time you're hearing more and more. People don't laugh at you now when you, when you talk about uh, UFOs. More, fewer people laugh at you. Yeah, a bit less. Yeah, than they would have done 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, Dan, you wanted to? Yeah, just, just before we kind of, you know, get to finishing up, um, a lot of the stuff we've spoken about is kind of questionable under law in certain places. So I wondered if you just mind, you know, if someone's listening and they're interested in starting down this path, what is the safe way to go about this? Um, yeah, so we have to look... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like a disclaimer, right? Yeah, so so most of the psychedelics, I mean, depends where you live. So um, if you live in certain parts of America, you might be lucky. You might find that magic mushrooms are, are, are legal and you might want to go down that route. Same with something like salvia. Um, the same with um, in Japan, for example, notoriously strict drug laws. Um, but... Um, the San Pedro cactus, which contains mescal mescaline, a very old traditional uh, hallucinogen, is perfectly legal. Um, whereas other things aren't. Cannabis is like the worst. It's like it's up there with heroin. It's crazy. But anyway, that's a different story. Uh, but yeah, look, you're you're you you are you are a um, you're an individual. You have some degree of autonomy, and but you have to be aware of the fact that there are people who have an interest in stopping you exploring your unconsciousness. I mean, for me, as a, from an ethical standpoint, we are sovereign human beings. Um, we, ha- we should have the right. We do have the right. Um, it's a God-given right or alien-given right or nat- natural-given right uh, for us to alter our own consciousness and to explore our own minds and to use the tools that would allow us to do that. And I don't agree that anyone, any government has the right to tell you what you can and can't do with your own mind and what you can and can't put into your own body. Um, so so from that perspective, from that position, um, I think anyone should you do what you want. But bear in mind um, that I'm certainly not suggesting that you should break any laws. That's on your, that's, that's up to you. If you want to be breaking laws, um, then that's nothing to do with me. I'm not suggesting that <laughs> i think there's people from about 50 or 60 different countries last time i checked listen to the podcast so make sure you're checking your own local laws That's as it. to what you can and cannot do 
precisely. Um, because yeah, because I mean the the, the the penalties will vary again depending on where you are. Some places it might be legal, in some places they might cut your hand off. Yeah, and Dan Dan will pay any fines you come across, Kevin. He brought that up, so don't worry about that. <laughs> Uh, that is all we've got time for. Andrew, you've been really generous with your time. How can people follow you and also pick up on your work as well? Yeah, so first port of call my website, uh, buildingalienworlds.com, uh, where you can find papers that I've written, articles I've written, um, interviews and uh, talk show, podcast appearances like this, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and you can also find um, links to purchase my book, Alien Information Theory, Psychoelectric Drug Technologies, and the Cosmic Game. You can actually look at some of the interior of the book and the pages uh, and, and also download the first chapter of the book to kind of see what you're getting yourself in for. Um, and also I'm I, on social media, I'm on Twitter, Alien Insect, uh, and also on Instagram, Alien Insect. So if you want to kind of keep up with me on a, a day-to-day basis and see what I'm doing and talking about, then follow me uh, on there. And awesome. Yeah, Contact in the Desert, of course, um, which I'm at, I think it starts on the 25th. I'm giving a lecture, one and a half hour lecture, and then a 90 minute workshop where I kind of go deep on some of these ideas. And also, on my, I have a YouTube channel, Alien Insect, where I have a, an eight unit psychedelic neuroscience master course for free, of course. So if you want to learn about how, how psychedelics work in the brain uh, at a very, very detailed but accessible um, level, then then you can you can go there and kind of watch through. I think it's like eighty videos over eight units. So yeah, do that. Brilliant. I think you've given Dan his weekend there. Uh, the looks <laughs> of it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, thank you for your time as well. Thank you, and thank you to Andrew. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right inside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue.